Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is October 10th, 2013, and this is episode 1225 of the Survival Podcast, and we're continuing on with TSP Classic. I'm taking you back today to August 19th, 2009, originally episode 260 of the Survival Podcast, called 12 Permaculture Principles Applied to Modern Survival. Those of you who have kind of found the show in the last year or two have probably learned a lot about permaculture on the Survival Podcast and have really grasped the understanding, if you've been listening, to how permaculture can be applied to make food production self-sufficient, self-reliant for us, and sustainable for us so that we can feed ourselves. And you probably think, well, that's, that's, that's why this is a survival topic. you got to eat. The truth, though, really, is permaculture is a troubleshooting system. As a former mechanic uh, that worked on military vehicles, everything from Humvees up to uh, Hemets and, and even some larger equipment than that, um, my key role in the military in doing my daily job was that of a troubleshooter. Um, you know, an operator you know, says, my vehicle's a problem, the problem is X, fix it. And generally, the problem's not X. The operator doesn't know what the problem with the vehicle is. They know it's not performing, and then you have to go in and you use a, a methodology, a troubleshooting methodology, inspecting the vehicle's performance beginning at a certain point based on the reported deficiency to find the actual problem so that it can be corrected. And that is an extremely valuable skill. It's made me very successful in business. When I go into a business as a consultant or as I've run my own businesses, when there's a problem, instead of letting people run their beaks about, well, it's because of this or it's because of that, I say, let's look at the operational flow of the business and pinpoint the problem. Well, we know what the problem is. No, you don't. If you did, I wouldn't be here. And that troubleshooting methodology is one of the most valuable things you can have. And when I found permaculture... I instantly realized that that's what permaculture was, right from the principle of the problem is the solution, that it was a troubleshooting methodology. Let's look at the principle and apply the principle to the operation of the system. This episode I'm going to take you back to in just a bit, again from August 19, 2009, is where I first explained that to the TSP audience. And I think it's something I haven't really covered in a long time, so it was a good one to bring back to you guys today. And again, we are back to the car day, so the audio quality will go down. Before I do that, let's take care of our sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day, number one, JM Bullion. Hey, if you need silver or gold and you want American silver eagles, pre-64 silver coins, any of that good stuff, generic rounds, whatever you can think of, you can find it at JM Bullion. Amazing pricing. Just amazing pricing. Better than Atmex and Monix. And I can talk to the owner. If you have a problem, let me know. I'll square it away. It doesn't happen often, but it's nice to know, like, if somebody just feels like customer service wasn't adequate or something, I can just pop an email over to the owner and say, hey, here's what happened. And, you know, he'll say, you know what? Thank you. That's what I love about JM's owner. When I tell him something went wrong, he's never like, God, you know, why are you making a big deal out of it? He's always like, thank you. Now I know. Now I can take corrective action. That's the kind of company I like having as a sponsor. Check them out today, jambullion.com. Next up today, Fortress Defense Consultants. Hey, I talk about the concept of gun owner efficiency all the time. And 
you know, there's three parts to that. The gun, the training, and the operator. If you don't have all three, you do not have efficiency when it comes to being a gun operator. So you have to have training to go along with the gun and the ammo. The best training you will find in the industry you can find with Fortress Defense Consultants and Frank Sharp Jr.'s uh, professional cadre of instructors. And remember, if you can't get up to where his school is in Indiana, if you can put together a group, he'll come to where you are and do a training with you. Check him out at FortressDefense.com. Last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members, and you help support the show at a whopping 18.3 cents per episode. Uh, if you are military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active due to your prior service, uh, please email me before, not after you join. Send that email to jack at the survivalpodcast.com and uh, put service discount in the subject line. And in two sentences or less, tell me who you are and what you're doing, or if you're prior service, who you are and what you did. Again, military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters all qualify for that service discount. Email me before, not after you join the brigade. So um, let's look at the year 1225 really quick and what was going on uh, there. The uh, Teutonic Order is expelled from Transylvania because they want to separate from Hungary. Okay, the uh, Teutonic Knights were sort of like another version of the, the Knights Templar. They were the Order of the Brothers of the German House of St. Mary in Jerusalem, um, commonly known as the Teutonic Order. And uh, they were formed to aid Christians in their pilgrimages to the Holy Land and establish hospitals. Its members have commonly been known as the Teutonic Knights, as they also served the crusading military in the Middle Ages. Military membership was always small, with volunteers and mercenaries augmenting the forces needed. Uh, after the Reformation, uh, the order became Protestant. Uh, and this branch still consists of knights, but in modern Roman Catholic order consists mostly of Roman Catholic priests, nuns, and associates. So, yeah, think of this like uh, Knights Templar Jr. directly answering to the papacy and then eventually going off with, you know, the Lutheran side of Reformation. Something that most people have never heard of. Um, and you realize that this concept of having uh, a, a pseudo-military force uh, assisting with people traveling to the Holy Land for pilgrimages during this time of the Crusades was not unique to the Knights Templar. The other thing that occurred in uh, 1225 is with the Magna Carta. Uh, the Magna Carta is reissued for the third time. So, you know, you think of the Magna Carta as the precursor of our, our own Constitution, and it's, it's often hailed very much so as a... Uh, as you know, an ex example of a great charter of liberty and reducing the power of monarchy, but it didn't. It's not like our constitution. See, our constitution was put into place, voted on, ratified, done, and then if you wanted to change it, it had to do through be done through amendment in the member states. I mean, our founders knew what they were doing. Not so with the Magna Carta. Now, in 1225, when it was reissued. Uh, that was actually known as the Great Charter of 1225, and here's what we know about that. Having reached the age of majority, King Henry III was called upon to confirm the charters. Henry reissued the Magna Carta in a shorter version with only 37 articles. So it's like if the president said, yeah, we're just going to change the Constitution to make it a little shorter, okay? Uh, as a concession in, of liberties in return for a 15th part, uh, part of movable goods. So there was a tax deal, basically. Uh, this was the first version of the charter to enter English law. 
So it actually becomes law here. The Charter of Liberties included a new statement that the Charter had been issued spontaneously of the king's free will. So basically, the Magna Carta in the Great Charter of 1225 didn't just get issued. The, the king said, I am doing this because I want to. I have chosen to, and it's of my own free will. I have not been coerced into doing this, even though in many ways he was coerced into doing this. In 1227, Henry declared all future charters had to be issued under his own seal and state under what warrant they were claimed. Okay, This proclaimed questioned the validity of all previous acts done in his name or uh, his predecessor's name. In other words, yeah, everything that, the, that was said by all the kings up to me Right? Doesn't really apply. And anything that was said after I took over that was done on my behalf but without my seal doesn't really apply. And anything going forward that gets added has to be done with my approval. So now it's almost like a president that never gets elected saying if you want to change the Constitution, whatever it said before I said it was okay doesn't apply. Uh, and whatever gets added to it in the future is what I decide. It has to be under my seal. Okay, And then it was not until 1237 that the Carta Prava, that both of the 1225 charters were confirmed and granted in perpetuity. So even when that was said, it wasn't officially a done deal, written in stone, sort of, kind of, until uh, 1237, 12 years later. And more happens to the Magna Carta before it reaches its final form. We'll hear about that in the future. But just understand this, monkeying around with the nation's constitution and the liberties of its people, nothing new. The more things change, the more they stay the same. With that, let's get into uh, going back in time here to, again, uh, August 19, 2009. Twelve permaculture principles applied to modern survival And uh, start to think about how these principles can be used not just for growing food and not just for your survival planning. I believe if you go through the principles, and I'm just going to read them to you here, uh, observe and interact, catch and store energy, obtain a yield, apply self-regulation and accept feedback, use and value resources and services, produce no waste, design for patterns of details, Integrate rather than segregate. Use small and slow solutions. Use and value diversity. Use edges and value the marginal. And use creativity and adapt to change. If you take those 12 principles, you can apply those to operating a business. You can apply those to running a household. You can apply those to how a government would run if it were done efficiently and equitably and fairly, not just to a group, but to the rights of the individual as a sovereign being. Right, especially if we pair it with the ethics, right? And the ethics are care of the earth, care of people, and return, not redistribution of surplus. But I won't go off on a tangent on that one today. But here we go. With that in mind, Jack Spirico, August 19, 2009, in the car, and get ready for the auto quality to go down a notch once again. So again, today's show is going to be about the 12 principles of permaculture. And uh, 
But if we're going to do that, let's start out with what is permaculture? What is what is its overriding theory? What is it all about? Well, it's a combination, like I said yesterday, if you heard yesterday's show, of permanent and agriculture, but also permanent and culture. It's not just a way to harness uh, nature's power when you're growing food and growing plants, but also how to harness all of these principles into how to create a permanent human culture that can sustain itself. It's an interaction between man, animals, and plants um, at a very deep level without getting in any way weird or like, I always have to say this because when you say that, people are like, well, you know, are you going to pray to the dirt or something? No, it's, it's nothing like that. It's an understanding of the mechanics and principles of how the earth and how the environment and how biology works and how to make it work stronger by helping it work together. So that's really what it's all about. So I thought with that in mind, I would try to extract from each one of these principles something that's directly applicable to survival philosophy as well. So that we can talk about the principle, we can talk about kind of a modern or simplified view of the principle, and then we can talk about not only how that applies to your garden or your backyard or your homestead, but how it applies to your everyday life as a prepper. I thought that would be a really cool show. One thing I want to say, though, based on some comments from yesterday, I've been asked about some permaculture books, and I've given my opinion on probably the best one being Permaculture One by Bill Mollison. Uh, it's, it's the Bible of permaculture. And one of the comments was, but it doesn't give me a lot of things that I need to plant in my environment, because this guy's down in the tropics of Australia, so he's planting things that I can't plant. I want you to understand as you explore, examine, and utilize permaculture principles, permaculture is not what to plant. Let me say that again. It is not what to plant. That is not part of permaculture. How to plant is the important part. It's for what to plant, plant Anything that you fancy planting that should do okay in your area. And the things that thrive and do well, continue to plant and encourage and grow. And the things that don't do well, let them fall to the wayside and try something else. That's how permaculture works. So when you look at a book, and it's an expensive book, and you got to buy it used, and the cheapest I found it was $67 yesterday. And I'm not saying to go out and buy it, but I'm saying when you buy a book like Permaculture One by Bill Mollison, you're buying the instruction manual of how to think and how to plant and how to create interactions. You are not buying a plant X, Y, and Z in the following pattern. Because that cannot be done, because you would literally have to write a book for every microclimate in the world so that each person that lived in a microclimate could buy that specific book for their specific area. Even in Texas, the things that Johnny Max can plant down in, in, in Houston area, there's plenty of things that will grow down there and survive their winters that I can't grow here. And that's just one state. So understand that, especially as I talk today, because I'm not going to talk a lot about what to plant. What I'm talking about is how to plant and how to use livestock and how to create interactions and things like that. How to understand the edge and the marginal. All right, so let's start out with principle number one. Principle number one is observe and interact. It's pretty much what I just said. 
permaculturist, unlike an agriculturist, doesn't just set out a pattern, drop in a bunch of seeds or plants, make sure that the needs are cared for, and back off and let it do its own thing. A permaculturist is a part of things. And that's my, I think, more simplified version of principle one. Instead of observe and interact, be a part of things. Say that to yourself. Be a part of things. And understand what that really means. That means that you immerse yourself into the landscape. You immerse yourself into the food forest that you're building. When you stand in your garden, you're not just looking, is everything doing okay? You know, or is anything eating a leaf, what have you? You're looking for very subtle signs that things are doing very well or poorly. And you're also looking for, okay, for instance, this plant's doing very well. Uh, but the side that gets the most solar exposure is actually getting scalded by the sun. The leaves are browned. It's going to make it. It's going to be okay, but it's getting some sun scald. What else could I plant that would give it some midday shade that wouldn't affect its growth negatively, but would help out with that sun scald? That's observation and interaction. It's There's a pest that's bothering one of my plants. Not only short-term, what organic means can I put out here for control? Let's say DE or diametaceous earth as a control mechanism. But let me now find out what this animal's chief predator is. And what do I plant to specifically attract that predator? Or how do I make it possible for my chickens to do my work for me? These all come from observation and interaction. But again, the simplified way to think about that is to be a part of things. If you're a part of things, you're naturally going to see problems and to find solutions. Now let's think about how does that apply to modern survival philosophy. Modern survival philosophy is not we just buy a bunch of food, stick it in a shelf somewhere, and a bunch of water and stick it somewhere, and a bunch of bullets and stick those somewhere, and a bunch of guns somewhere, and we wait for the end. Modern survival philosophy is we live a better life today even if nothing goes wrong. And we work on projects and we do little incremental things to greatly improve our self-sufficiency. We will screw up as we do that. I do it. I'm sure you have too. But by being involved in the process, instead of it just being a list of steps that we take, and you, once you tick all the boxes, fine, I'm prepared. By it being an active and evolving process, you have to be a part of it. And remember what I always say. I can't tell you, I can't tell you what your plan is. All I can tell you is the information that I have, and you use it to create your own plan because you have to own your plan. Now, folks, i got to tell you, this was long, I came up with that long before uh, I read these 12 principles of permaculture. They just fit together because it's nature. All right? And this thing's going to zip together like a perfect zipper, and you're going to think, Jack built this whole survival philosophy out of the permaculture principles. Not so, my friends. It's just what happens when you follow natural patterns. All right, so the next one is catch and store energy. All right? Catch and store energy. That is a permaculture principle. Let me simplify it for you. Let me break that down into something we say here all the time. Be an ant, not a grasshopper. Be an ant, not a grasshopper. Catch and store energy. If you think about what an ant does, the ant is the ultimate harvester of solar energy. Ants don't have solar panels, no. But they spend all summer long harvesting food sources that either 
directly or indirectly are created by the warmth of the sun and the light of the sun. If it's something vegetable, of course it grew from the sun, and if it's you know chopping up the occasional grasshopper and hauling him back into the into the nest, you know the grasshopper was consuming the solar powered grass, and then the ant harvests the the meat just like we do when we harvest a deer or we harvest a cow or we harvest a chicken. It's the same principle, and that's what an ant is really doing is catching and storing energy. With permaculture, the way that we're doing that is through things such as composting. Uh, most people take their waste and they throw it in the garbage and it goes away, where a permaculturist says, hey, you know what? What I'm going to do is take all this waste and put it into a compost heap and recycle that energy back into the ground. Permaculture very much would be interested in putting together, let's say, a greenhouse. And inside that greenhouse, you can grow vegetables all through the winter because you're catching and storing the solar energy. But you would also, instead of just having a freestanding greenhouse out in the middle of a field, attach it to your home and use it as a passive way to heat your home throughout the winter by having it adjoin a wall and maybe even creating vents into the greenhouse that allow the caught warm energy that provides for the plant life to also provide for the humans that live in the house. All right, that is that principle at work as a permaculture principle. It also permeates every aspect of modern survival philosophy, from a solar panel on your roof to provide backup power, or a windmill to provide backup power, or anything like that, right down to the can of beans, right, that you store on a shelf, all you're doing throughout everything that involves storage and capture is catching and storing energy. Food is an energy source. It, it, it absolutely is an energy source. It's the fuel that runs your body. Storing food for your body is like storing gasoline for your automobile. It's the same principle. So it is directly applicable to this uh, permaculture uh, uh, principle. Principle three is obtain a yield. The permaculturist isn't just concerned with trying to save the planet or whatever. The, the action has to have a result. Bill Mollison is a genius because he realized if he was going to create something that was going to affect change in the world and, and have people adopt it and pick it up and start using it as an alternative to modern agriculture, which in many ways is raping and destroying the planet, that it couldn't just be like people were going to do it because it was a nice thing to do or because they had a you know huge ethical belief in it. It had to actually work better and provide more than typical agriculture. And if you look with, with what, at what you can do with something like a food forest um, with absolutely no maintenance at all once it's established and how much food it will produce, it blows away modern agriculture. Now, how do we think about this in a more modern, more American-minded concept? Get a return of investments. Obtain an ROI. In other words, all the effort that you put into creating a system should be paid back to you more times over. It should not be a direct exchange. I put in 2,000 calories of burn, and I get 2,000 calories of food. That's not an ROI. I put in $2,000, and I get back $2,000, and I break even. That's not an ROI. That's break even. That's a charity aspect. 
right? I put in 2,000 calories of work and $2,000 of funding. I should get thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars for years and years and years back out of my permaculture system. And I should get meal after meal after meal after meal. And I should get so much that I'm actually giving some of my food away if I'm practicing permaculture the right way. Now, how does that apply to modern survival philosophy? Everything you do should improve your stake if times get tough or even if they don't. I don't know how much more I need to say about that, but to make it more clear, when we store food and we store what we eat and we eat what we store and we beat inflation, not only do we have a reserve food source if something goes wrong, we actually spend less money. When we take advantage of opportunity buys, meaning that since we have 90 days or six months worth of food at the house and we go out and there's something we typically buy and it's not on sale this week and we don't have a coupon for it this week or the price went up on it, we don't buy it this week. Screw it. We pull one out of store for the week, and then next week when it goes on sale or we have a coupon or the price goes back down or what have you, we purchase it then, and then we purchase it in quantity. So we get an ROI in everything that we do. We reload ammunition. Saves money over buying it off the store shelf. Right? Uh, we put in solar energy or we put in wind energy. We don't do it to save the polar bears from drowning since they can swim 50 miles from shore. Thank you. We do it because if it's done smart and right, it gives us a long-term ROI by giving us independence from the electric company and, therefore, the electric company's bill. So everything that we do in modern survival philosophy is about obtaining an ROI. Um, the next one is self-regulate and accept feedback. Self-regulate and accept feedback. That's a permaculture principle. In other words, don't take everything all the time. And if you do something and you get a negative result, look at it, pay attention to it, don't do that again. Or if you do something and you get a positive result, do a little bit more. In other words, understand that in the environment that you're taking care of, your effects can have both a positive and a negative impact. And you have to measure what you do and measure the result that you get so that you don't screw something up. That's as simple as I can make it. Now, how do I modernize that? Don't kill the golden goose. All right, it's an old moral, and everybody understands it. Right? In the story, the goose laid a single golden egg every day. And what did the asshat do? He killed the goose to get all the eggs out, and there were no eggs inside. The goose could only produce one lump of gold every day. So instead of having an egg with gold every day, he tried to get greedy and got nothing and ruined it. That's what happens when you try to over-push an environment, to try to get more out of land than it's capable of producing, or you try to go too fast, or you try to do too much without first observing and interacting with it and understanding what you're doing. That's the risk that you take. So you have to proceed slowly with caution in stages and phases and accept feedback along the way so that you don't kill off your golden goose, which is your land that's beginning to produce for you rather than consume your resources. And if you think about modern survival philosophy and everything that we talk about, disaster probability, what's most likely, what's least likely, start to prepare for things like a job loss or death of a family member before you start worrying about preparing for Armageddon. 
and phase that in. And as you make mistakes and they, they have a negative effect on your overall plan, make changes, make adaptations. Again, it fits perfectly with modern survival philosophy. Um, the next principle, uh, which is principle number five of 12, use and value resources. Use and value resources. In other words, a permaculturist is not um, a person that looks at a tree and says, we'll never cut that tree down. What they say is, well, that tree's most used to us is its growth, its, its carbon pathways, which are another way to say that it's putting roots down into the ground, the fruit that it produces, the shade that it provides, the bioorganic material that it provides, then it's a tree that grows. But I understand that if I'm planting the right types of trees, I'm planting something that does have timber value, and at the end of its life, and it might be my grandson that, that makes that call, but at some point the tree will re- reach an end of its life. It will be time for it to be replaced. So I want a tree that not only is going to produce a lot of food and biomass, I also want a tree that's going to produce a valuable timber crop. Or the other way to look at that is everything should have multiple purposes. So I go out and I set up um, a system where I'm feeding my waste materials to my chickens. My chickens are then turning it into chicken poop. I'm putting the chicken poop back into the compost bin, and I'm composting that, and I'm putting it back into the ground, and that's growing more food. And I'm getting multiple uses out of one thing, the waste. It's food, it's organic matter, and eventually it becomes new food. And everything that's out there that I'm using, I try to find as many uses for as possible. Uh, The way we look at that in a modern standpoint is make use of everything. Nothing Nothing is waste. There is no waste. Anything that you have is an asset. Look at it. Figure out how you can use it. Even things that, like, you've kind of run out of things to do with them, okay? They're kind of, you know, end-of-life cycle items. Well, what could I do with it? Who could I give it to? How can I adapt it? And if you think about how this applies to survival philosophy, not even modern survival, just general survival philosophy, as soon as your systems of support are cut off, all right, if we think about the show The Colony, which I'm not going to talk about today, I'll probably talk about it tomorrow, uh, the most recent episode, but... In that situation, there's nothing that's garbage. As soon as there's no way to run to the store, no delivery trucks are coming, you're on your own, you're on your own little island of sorts, then you no longer have any waste. Everything that you have must be used to its fullest potential. And that's what permaculture is all about, is making sure that all of the resources that you have are being maximized and used in multifaceted ways so that they support each other and do more than one job. A chicken is a perfect example of this principle. A chicken provides an egg, which you can eat. If you breed them, it provides meat, which is an additional protein source. It provides manure for the garden. And you build something like a chicken tractor and move them around and control where they are. And they also till the soil and control pests. One item, multiple uses. That's how this principle works. That's how modern survival philosophy works. If you buy something, you should be thinking, not only can I do this with it, but it also serves a role as X, Y, and Z as well. The next one's very similar, so I'm not going to go on and on about it. I'm going to be very brief with it, but it's produce no waste. 
So it's not just about making sure that everything has multiple uses, but that nothing is ever thrown away. So, we, again, a perfect example would be taking waste and turning it into compost um, or turning manure into compost. But when we look at that from a modern survival philosophy, remember one of the things I've talked about so much, how much we've lost that we no longer teach our children to fix things. A kid brings something and goes, Dad, look, it's broken. And uh, then between dad, you know, just not wanting to mess with it and the kid, bump, you know, begging, uh, they go out and buy a new one. Or the kid has to save his own money up and buy a new one. Or dad doesn't want to hear it, so he goes out and buys him a new one. Well, you know, I remember when I was a kid, and if I broke something, if it was fixable, if there was any way it could be repaired, I would be taught how to fix it. I remember one time I was standing in my room playing with a fishing rod, practicing how to cast, and I ended up banging the rod tip off of my closet door, and it cracked the rod tip, not the, 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 the rod itself, but the little guide, the, the, the very end guide. It broke it, and I was scared, and I went to my uncle, and I said, um, I broke my fishing rod. He said, how did you break your fishing rod? You weren't even fishing. And I told him, and I thought I was going to get yelled at more. And he said, well, that's fine. Let me show you how to fix it. He showed me how to cut the rod tip off and uh, use some glue. And, where to, you know, we had some extra tips I didn't know about, but he always kept them around. Showed me how to put it on there. Showed me how to wrap it and uh, put some epoxy on it. Showed me how to fix it. And by showing me how to fix it, he actually showed me how to build a fishing rod, honestly, from a blank instead of eyes. So I could have then, after that, just from that one little lesson, went out and built a fishing rod instead of throwing it away and creating waste. So that's how that principle applies. And I think with the prior principle, I don't really need to say any more about that. Um, the next one is design from patterns to details. So that you're not just going in and setting up, let's say, a square foot garden with its pattern uh, and its individual plantings. That would only be one piece of the whole. You need to step back, and that's kind of my modern view of modern survival, or, or my, you know, my modern view of this principle. And uh, as you can hear by the sirens, we've got a major catastrophe wreck on LBJ, and the police are coming by me, which is nothing new. Um, so design from pattern to details, to me, that says be an artist. Step back. And if you take a beautiful painting in a, in a modern art museum, something that's, that's a beautiful picture of a woman or a, a beautiful picture of a building or a landscape, and you step very, very close to it, and you look at one square inch of the canvas, it doesn't look like anything. Even if you look at three or four square inches of the canvas, often all you see are these rough, coarse brush strokes. And, and you realize that the, the painting isn't really a painting. It's made up of all these little shapes and forms that the paint was laid on the canvas with. But when you step back, you see the view in its entirety. And that's part of a permaculture design principle. You should be able to t step back and take a longer view of things and understand that you're building an organism. Whether you're doing it on a tenth of an acre or you're doing it on ten acres doesn't matter. The whole system itself is an organism that works together. And if you focus too much on any one component then you won't build a symbiotic system that works together. So you start by designing the patterns, the individual components, but throughout the whole thing you have an end in mind, a place that you're going, and occasionally you step back to see what you've missed. And if you don't step back once in a while and evaluate and look at the big picture, you'll miss opportunities. 
Now, how does that fit with modern survival philosophy? As you're building your plan, as you're putting your documentation together, storing your food, every once in a while you have to pull yourself out of it. You just have to step back and look at things and say to yourself, how close am I getting to what I really want? How much self-sufficiency do I really want? Do I want 90 days? Do I want 6 months? Do I want 30 days? What's my goal? Where am I trying to get to? How are all of these things functioning together to get me there? Where's the weak spot? How can I sculpt my lifestyle as an artist so that I get what I'm looking for out of it? And it's amazing how these permaculture principles, again, fit perfectly with this modern survival philosophy. Again, it's only because it's based on nature. And as I said yesterday, there really is nothing original in the world created by man. Nature has laid down all the patterns. All that we do is harness them, emulate them, and use them in different methods. And there goes another cop. Sirens, wondering, folks, don't worry, folks, they're not after me. I didn't do anything. Um... The next principle, principle eight, integrate, don't segregate. Integrate, don't segregate. Now, what does the permaculturist mean by that? They mean in simple terms, don't practice monoculture. If you think about a modern farm, even a farm, let's say you have a farm that grows corn, soybeans, and sweet potatoes. Now, you know what you're going to see when you go see this farm. You're going to see a great big field of corn, maybe a tree line in between, a great big uh, field of soybeans, and another tree line, and a great big field of uh, sweet potatoes. And then next year they'll rotate the crops through so that they don't overuse the ground. At least, you know, they're going to practice crop rotation and till the soil and all that. But what they've created is a great big block of a single item. And that means it's like ding, 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 a dinner bell for any pest or disease that attacks, let's say, the soybeans. It's it's this huge buffet. It would be like if you went to a buffet restaurant and in one little area... They had filet mignon steak. Well, all the meat eaters would be huddled around that one area devouring that steak, and the steak wouldn't stand a chance. If you spread the steak out in three or four different varieties, surrounded by a bunch of other things that everybody likes to eat, then the buffet will work again, and everybody kind of spreads out, and each item has a chance to be replenished before it's completely devoured. I I can't make it any simpler than that. Now, in modern... Uh, terms, or, or something that's more, you know, corporate understood today, or more military understood today, understand the power of teams. That's what this is really about. Integration in a permaculture model, in an agriculture model, is about teamwork. It's about companion planning. It's about if I create this clump of vegetables... It's part of my herbaceous layer as a permaculturist. And instead of being a big clump of corn, I have maybe eight corn plants just in this one clump. And I have uh, beans growing in there with them, and I have squash going, uh, growing in there with them. So basically now I have a three sisters garden. But in addition to that, uh, maybe I have radishes, I have beets, I have two or three different kinds of herbs. I have some flowers that are just there for beauty and for insect attraction. I have basil that I'm allowing to go to seed and produce flowers and bringing in bees and other predatory insects. And I create this this more of a buffet model. It's harder for the corn borer to even figure out the corn's there in the first place. And even when it does show up, it's got all these predators that are out there trying to eat it. And unlike a pesticide, when you rely on predator relationships, there's no resistance. In other words... Um, An aphid can't develop a resistance to a ladybug. 
because a ladybug just eats it. Right? You don't develop resistance to being consumed. But that's about teamwork. It's about putting things together. It's the same principle, if you saw the videos that I did about a week ago, uh, that I did this year where I went, corn doesn't really do that well in North Texas. It gets very hot here. Uh, the soil's tough on it. it. It's just a hard thing to grow here. And I haven't had a lot of luck with it. So I wanted to do something along the lines of three sisters. So instead of planting corn, I planted mammoth sunflowers that grew over eight feet tall. And I tried train my beans up the sunflower stalks. That's a teamwork environment. And it actually, I think, is a much better way to support pole beans because they grow taller, they're more sturdy, and since the stalks are kind of a hairy, uh, if you feel them, they kind of feel sticky, it's very easy for the beans to wrap around them. So it's another teamwork. And you can look at all different types of companion plantings. And then if you look at the layer system that we talked about yesterday, the canopy, the subtree layer, the shrub layer, all of those things are also teamwork and tandem as well. And you notice what I said yesterday when I said your shrub layer, I didn't say plant an entire layer of blackberries. I said you plant blackberries, you plant blueberries, you plant currants, you plant gooseberries, you create this mix. And you should be doing that through all the things that you do as a permaculturist and harnessing that power of teams. Now, how's that fit modern survival philosophy? Perfectly. One of the biggest things that we talk about here is community. Having this community, sharing knowledge with each other in our form, getting involved in other forms, sharing knowledge there, um, starting up community activity at the local level if you can, sharing your garden production with your neighbors is a first step toward bringing self-sufficiency to your neighborhood, doing things like organizing a neighborhood watch. All of these things are about the fact that a group of people together can do far more than they can do as a, as a group of individuals apart from each other. And that's all this permaculture principle is saying, is if we take and we mimic nature, and in nature you never see a field of one plant species. It never, ever happens. There's always dozens, if not hundreds, of plant species in any single acre if left to itself. And then we as humans, like, look at this perfect system, this self-sustaining, supporting system, and go, nah, that's not good enough. Let's go ahead and segregate this thing out. And all the permaculture is the same is it's not necessary, and it's not efficient, and it's not the best way to do things. Principle nine is use small and slow solutions. In other words, you're not going to completely re-terraform your entire backyard overnight. If you try that, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to wither out, and you're, not, you're going to fall out, and you're not going to get it done. Additionally, it won't work. You know, you can go a lot faster than nature can. If you just abandon your backyard, eventually it will turn into its own forest again. Trees will go right up through your roof. But it will take a lot longer than if it's done with you helping it along. But there's still a limit, a speed at which the land can recover from being stripped bare. So you have to work with small projects slowly over time to slowly evolve the solution that you're looking for. And if you do that, you'll get the end result you'll have in mind, and you won't fall out along the way. For me, an easier way to understand that principle, more modern way, a less textbook-sounding way, is simply focus on what you can do now. What can you do today? If you can do it today, then do it. If you can't do it today, then find out what you can do today. 
In other words, it, it might not be possible right now for you to go out, even if you have a big enough piece of land, and buy 20 uh, semi-dwarf fruit trees and start putting them out there and watering them and everything else like that. But maybe you're starting out today with a container garden or a single-race bed. And over time, you're evolving there. So even though there's this big picture, there's this end game that you're working for, there's this symbiosis and self-supporting ecosystem that you're trying to build, there's only so much you as an individual can do now. So focus on that. And don't try to go faster than your capability or nature's capability. Now, modern survival philosophy, this is pretty simple to understand. We face everything that we do. Everything that we do as a modern survivalist starts out with you developing your own plan and slowly adding to it as you can, doing what you can as you can to slowly become more and more self-sufficient. Now, here's how the two of them really sync up. Boy, there's cops everywhere today, folks. I can't believe uh, whatever's going on up here must be a big deal. Anyway, but as a modern survivalist, when you start out, it seems monumentous. It seems like there's no way you're ever going to be completely self-sufficient. It seems like there's no way you're ever going to even have 30 days' worth of extra food. It seems like there's no way to find any extra money. It feels like there's no way to pay off the debt. But every time you accomplish one thing, you have one thing less to do. And as you go, it gets easier and it builds up. Debt's a perfect example. As you're paying off debt, you have five big debts. You pay your smallest one off first and you use the debt snowball principle that Dave Ramsey has made famous. You take all the money you were paying on the little debt, put it on the second debt, and you start paying that off. And then you go to pay the third debt off. By the time you get to your fifth debt, you pay it off quicker than the first one because you've combined things over time and you've built up momentum. And that's really what we're talking about here. Uh, you know, it's building up momentum, but you start out with a slow, simple solution, and the power of that slow solution compounds itself over time, and it actually gets easier, and things start to do things for you rather than you having to do everything. That's true in permaculture. It's true in life. It's true in modern survival philosophy. Uh, principle number 10, use and value diversity. Use and value diversity. That sounds like some kind of like rainbow coalition statement or something, doesn't it? Um, you know, let's uh, get more minorities into the workplace or something like that. Has nothing to do with that, folks. We're talking about plants here. Use and value diversity. If you want to take that into a modern principle, it's reduce risk. Reduce your risk. Perfect example of this um, that caused the uh, uh, Irish potato famine. Uh, the, the the folks decided that, hey, you know what? This lumper potato is the best potato we've ever found. It grows great in our climate. It's a wonderful potato. It, it gets big. It, it, it's a reliable producer. It produces every year. Um, this is the potato for us. So they, they standardized on it. And uh, there was only four potatoes being grown in Ireland at the time of the famine, but well over over 90% of them were this one potato, the lumper. I think there was even a British law requiring the Irish farmers to grow this daggone thing. And then blight hit it. And they withered and rotted in the ground. And thousands upon thousands of people starved in a famine because they didn't use and value diversity. Where in other areas that were affected by blight that year, that planted multiple varieties of potatoes, certain potatoes proved to be more resistant to that particular blight, and at least they had some crop. So in your permaculture plantings, you don't plant 
you know, salad bowl green lettuce. You plant four or five varieties of lettuce. And you know what? Even over time, you may eventually decide, I only want to standardize on three of these, the three that grow the best in my area. But you never grow just one. And then you never just grow lettuce. You grow lettuce, you grow uh, chard, you grow mustard greens, you grow oriental greens, you grow multiple greens to fill that one void. And you put them in multiple areas and you, you plant them interplanted with different interplantings. So that if any portion fails, you have a backup plan. In other words, to make this as simple as possible, in a modern principle, reduce your risk. You use a well-balanced portfolio to create risk reduction. In other words, instead of sticking all your money into one stock, the financial advisor tells you to buy a mutual fund. I tell you put some of your money into real estate, put some of your money into hard assets, put some of your money into food, put some of your money, yes, into stocks, put some of your money into gold, put some of your money into silver, diversify across a broad range of things so that if any one of them ever totally collapses, you haven't lost everything. Keep some cash, right? That's modern survival principle, permaculture principle, multiple interplantings, overriding principle, easy, simple to understand in modern English. Reduce your risk with diversification. Pretty simple. The next one is really, really important, and that is use edges and value the marginal. I talked about this yesterday. The most life in a forest environment is at its edge. If you if you look at a place where the field joins the forest and you've got that, you know, you've got the herbaceous layer, layer turning into the shrub layer, turning into the sub tree layer, turning into the canopy. And that area from the very beginning of the canopy to the to a little bit into the herbaceous layer. If you stood there every evening, you're going to see tons of wildlife attracted to that edge. The same way that if you go to a pond and you want to fish the pond, even if you had a boat, you're not going to sit in the middle of the pond and fish in the center of the pond. You'll probably take the boat and cruise the shorelines because it's the edges and the breaks that create habitat, and that's where the life is. Even when you see a guy out in the middle of a lake fishing in very deep water, and you're thinking, well, he's not on the edge, he's not on the marginal, I almost guarantee you there's a structure. For instance, I fish for uh, white bass, or sand bass, as we call them here in Texas a lot, and we might be way out in the middle of the lake, but what the people on the shore that don't understand what we're doing can't see is underneath us, we're surrounded by 50 feet of water, but I'm sitting in 30 feet of water, because there's a great big gravel hump, and that is another edge, and those fish are attracted to that edge. So everything in nature follows this principle that the edges and the margins are where the life is. But in modern philosophy, in a modern way of thinking, that seek alliances instead of conflicts. You would think that in an environment in the center of the lake where like every fish can have is 10 feet to himself or whatever, that would be an ideal place to live. But it's not because the fish is not an island. You can't be completely independent. Or in the forest, that the best place for the deer would be back in the deep, dark woods. Well, unless the uh, acorns have just fallen and there's mast on the ground, there's not a lot of browse for him to eat there. So he has to come out to the margins at night and in the mornings to feed. He has to seek alliances with the natural things that are around him. Without that, he cannot thrive. In fact, he cannot even survive. And that's true of everything in nature. That's true of us as people. Modern survival philosophy, seek alliances. 
find other like-minded people. Not just so that if the shit hits the fan, you can band together and do more and help each other. But seek alliances today, even if nothing goes wrong, so you can learn from what other people have already done. There's no reason for you to make a mistake when the guy that you, you know, you're posting a message to on the forum says, hey, dude, I did that. Here's what happened. Here's how I solved the problem. You just cut your learning curve in half because of an alliance. And it's that edge in philosophy where two people's philosophy integrate with each other. And they create an edge where there's more combined knowledge because both sides are providing input and historical reference to each other. It is a core guiding principle to nature. And because it's a natural principle, it's a core guiding principle to how people interact with each other and live. When I say Bill Mollison is a genius... I mean it. For him to take these principles that already existed before humans even walked the planet, understand them and put them into a format that made them completely universal no matter what you look at, the man was a genius. Is a genius, I should say. He's still with us, thank God. The last principle is use creativity and adapt to change. Use creativity and adapt to change. In other words, sometimes the things you do just ain't going to work out. But you're going to have to figure out, well, how can I make this work? Or sometimes you're going to go, hey, that guy used a particular item to get this done. Uh, maybe it's a plant, right? So he's, he's used this, uh, what is it, the vanilla, vanilla bean plant, a vanilla bean tree. There's a, there's a tree that a lot of permacultures in the tropics use. I think it's called vanilla bean, whatever it is, doesn't matter. And what he's doing with that is he plants that tree as he's growing out his forest, and once it grows up to about eight foot tall, it grows very, very fast. He cuts off the top four feet, throws it on the ground, and chops and drops and does it over and over and over again. And it's helping to build up the mulch layer, the forest floor, putting nitrogen into the ground. But you know what? That plant won't grow in Pennsylvania. I can't do it. So then all you have to do, again, instead of worrying about, well, he's growing this plant, it doesn't work for me. And I hear that all the time when people look at permaculture materials. Stop seeing the problem. Start seeing the solution. What are you looking for? A fast-growing tree that produces nitrogen that's hardy in your area. Locust. Okay? That's simple. Locust trees. Locust trees do the exact same thing for your climate. So you have to do the modern principle, I think makes it easier to understand. And that is, from the military, improvise, adapt, and overcome. There's always a solution. In fact, I had a military officer that used to say to me, do you know what a problem with no apparent solution is, Mr. Spierko? I'd say, sir, what is that? He'd say, that's a challenge, soldier. That's the definition of a challenge. Now, it's up to you to go from no apparent solution to use your troubleshooting skills and figure out what the solution is because there's always a solution. Now, think about how that applies to modern survival philosophy. I can't pay off my debt because I don't make enough money to do that. Well... It's a natural troubleshooting process. How can I increase income or reduce expenses in other areas? One way or another, the problem's not going away unless I address it. I can't figure out how to start storing more food. Just can't. I don't have enough money. It's not there. There's nothing I can do. I'm stuck right now. What do I do to solve this problem? One of our listeners, you know what he did? He started taking walks at lunchtime like I suggested. And he started noticing money on the ground. Okay. 
he'd just find change. And he'd say, well, if there's change on the ground here, where would there be more change? So he figured out that the most change would probably be around parking meters. So he started taking walks in his area around parking meters at lunchtime, and he started finding a lot more change. And in a month and a half, I think he stored 30 pounds of storable food that was 100% acquired and paid for by picking up spare change off the ground, 30 pounds of food. He improvised, adapt, and overcome. But that all started for him, he said, with increasing his situational awareness. Just paying attention to what's around you. So we go right back. We, and when you think about that, we've come to the 12 principle. We go right back to principle one. Observe and interact. That's situational awareness. This is a holistic process. There's no beginning and no end. These 12 principles just happen to be in that order because that's how the founder put them when he wrote them down. There is no proper order for them. All they are is one full process. That if we look at it, we understand it, we're able to utilize it in all walks of life and certainly in modern survival philosophy. Well, I had to pause there, folks, to get around the uh, catastrophe, which looks like it was an accident. It caused some kind of a big fluid spill, so there's like oil all over the road they're cleaning up. And what do you know, right on the other side of the road, I guess from people having to look at it, there's a huge accident on the other side of 635 of people in the HOV lane. So um, I'm past the accident. I'm about, I think I'm about to the end of the show today. Hopefully this was a good show to you. Hopefully it's made you think differently about the concept of permaculture and understand the power of natural power pattern and natural reality. If you if you can understand that, if you can grasp that, you can apply it to anything in your life and anything that you're trying to accomplish. You've heard the old saying, we can't reinvent the wheel, or we shouldn't try to reinvent the wheel, I guess is a better way to look at it. You could do it, but why try when it already works perfectly? Well, I think we have a tendency to try to reinvent nature instead of just observing what actually does work, what has worked for a long time, and how we can harness that and use that to accomplish our goals uh, and our efforts of being more self-sufficient. So that's what today was really all about. And uh, hopefully you'll tie into it now. Hopefully you'll start to take those 12 principles and start to look at how can I apply them to my own little homestead. And remember, your homestead is your homestead if it's a rooftop garden in the middle of the city or 40 acres in the country. I know which one I prefer, but for each individual, we have to make our own choices. But we have the ability to create greater independence no matter where we live if we simply improvise, adapt, and overcome. And that's a great way to start living a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. You can scream and you can holler It doesn't matter cause it all gets spent